Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, my, how time flies. Students are getting ready to head back to school. While in-person learning has returned, we know that COVID-19 has not gone away. I'll speak with APS Superintendent Dr. Lisa Herring as the district prepares to welcome back thousands of students and educators. Also, communities of color oftentimes are inundated with a number of environmental hazards and stressors and extreme heat is something that layers on top of other disparities. A new series from WABE examines how climate change is affecting Georgia. Our small but mighty environment reporting duo of Molly Samuel and Emily Jones will stop in for a chat. That's all ahead. But first this, speaking of heading back to school, Clayton County students will not be dismissed if they do not have a clear backpack on the first day of school next week. Now, following a spike in gun confiscations, the district required all backpacks to be see-through this year. But supply chain issues are making those hard to come by, including the $1.1 million worth the county itself is trying to supply. Clayton Superintendent Morrissey Beasley addressed the issue of the backpacks during a virtual town hall this week. Bags will be distributed starting at open house, possibly later. But the goal is to get every student a book bag. So be patient because all of the suppliers that we are interacting with are also filling demands from other school systems. Another new provision that will be ready to go on day one, metal detectors. Clayton has installed weapons detection devices at entrances of all the district's middle and high schools. An AJC investigation found close to 100 weapons were seized on Clayton Public Schools buses and on school grounds in the last academic year. That also included an AR-15 assault rifle. In other news, Atlanta is among four finalists cities vying to host the Democratic National Convention in 2024. As we hear from Emil Moffitt, members of the selection committee wrapped up their site visit with a stop in downtown Atlanta yesterday. Standing inside State Farm Arena, Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens couldn't help but note that it was here where tens of thousands of voters cast ballots in 2020 as a Democratic presidential candidate won Georgia for the first time in nearly 30 years. Something about this place is very special and it needs to be honored and rewarded with the DNC convention in 2024 so that lightning can strike in a bottle twice. DNC Chair Jamie Harrison says the choice of Atlanta, New York, Houston or Chicago will be tough, but that Atlanta has a lot going for it. Atlanta is a city that represents the Democratic Party's values, the values of diversity, inclusion and opportunity. Harrison says the decision is expected by late December or early January. Emil Moffitt, WABE News. Finally, Cobb County's youngest students, well, they got a chance to test ride the school bus before classes start Monday. Now, kindergartners and first graders rode the bus with their parents yesterday. And for students at Tritt Elementary, that also meant a musical welcome from the Pope High School marching band. WAB's Martha Dalton wrote along and sent this audio postcard. Hi, Kennedy. How you doing this morning? Ellen. Ellen. Okay. So pretty. Good morning. Good morning. How How are you? My name is McGee. Hi, Miss McGee. Good morning. I'm Samantha. Yeah. You see the number? Five zero four one. You remember it? Yeah. Five zero four one. Yep. You remember that number, okay? Okay. Oh, guys, they're waiting on y'all. We had a trip. (laughs) 
What's your favorite thing about school? Uh, my favorite thing is French. I'm Karen Karstens, principal of Trent Elementary School. Today is such a wonderful day for our students to get a glimpse into what the first day of school is going to be like. They get to ride the bus if they're in kindergarten or they're a new first grader, so they're comfortable with that. They can come into the school, find their way to their classroom, meet their teacher, find out their seats. It's just a wonderful day to get us to start the first day of school perfectly. My parents just threw me on a bus and said, we'll see you later. Something like that. No, they didn't do that. <laughs> That's a great story from Martha Dalton. We're back in a moment. You're listening to Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. This school year, it's the 150th anniversary of the founding of the Atlanta Public Schools. And we know educators, students, and staff, they're all set to return next week while in-person learning has returned. We know that COVID-19 hasn't gone away, so there's still a need to keep some protocols in place. And that's just one issue I'll discuss. Joining me now to talk about the upcoming school year is APS Superintendent Dr. Lisa Herring. Welcome back. It's been some time. It has been some time. Thank you for the welcome, and it's my pleasure to be back with us. Now, earlier in our news brief, we played a little clip of the kids on their first day, you know, those getting a glimpse, getting a taste of what it's going to be like to ride the school bus. Remember your first day of school? Let me say this. Not only do I remember my first day of school, one of the reasons why I love this time of year is connected to my own memories, whether it was the excitement about seeing my friends from the summer and wondering who got whose homeroom and what class and what <laughs> teacher, or even if it was the box of crayons and I was like, always wanting the box of 64. If you ever had the box of 64, what's on the back? Yeah. That uh, sharpener, right? Yeah. So that, that was my joy. That was my joy. Like the, I, I wanted a, a trapper keeper. I know nobody knows what a trapper I keeper do, is. Let me tell you something, because I remember, so just bear with us listeners. It's closer look at Rose Scott, so just hang in there. Um, I remember I, I begged and begged. I had to have a Star Wars trapper keeper and and my dad came home with something that had like horses on it and i was like dude this is not what i asked for but i was grateful i don't think i was ungrateful um and then my brother had something with like you know uh i don't know the hardy boys mystery or something and he was like yeah whatever but i did i did end up getting a a star wars trapper keeper and because my parents are just awesome so they kind of faked me out a little bit but no that's great you know and and having a backpack and in the lunchbox and oh, and I will say this too. I asked my dad for a Jackson 5 lunchbox, and he came come home on. with the Osmond brothers. And hey, I was like, I don't want on, them. <laughs> and listen, I like both. I was like, they are. Right. I was like, the, the Osmond's okay, but where is Michael and Tito on them? So, yeah, you know, we, <laughs> we, had to work, well, we had to work through that, but, you know, all was well. There you go. And, and what we're doing is what I want for all of our scholars in APS, that excitement, their ability to have all that they need to be excited so that they're not worried about uh, resources for the first day and the excitement of coming back to that community where we're ready to receive them. Well, let's back up for a moment because I want to ask you this. Uh, how do you, Superintendent Herring, how do you personally prepare for a new school year? What is that process like for you? Yeah, so there's probably multiple levels to that. You know, in the superintendency, there is no quote unquote summer break. We work all year, 
year round as an organization, as a corporation. But we spend a good bit of the summer doing appropriate professional PD, trying to also get our staff and our people in place, and then motivating and encouraging and setting the blueprint or the path for the upcoming year. Now you said, how do I mm -hmm. do that? But knowing that that's done gives me some ability to then also get mentally prepared for the upcoming year um, and to try to find a moment to reset. And um, I do take time to do that because we hit the ground running, Rose, we do. And it goes right into the summer of the next year. Uh, I do try to find balance in those ways. And so. it has been, I mean, not just for you, but every superintendent, all the educators, yes. all the staff, because we're still in yes. this pandemic. Are you able to, to look at assessments that need to be improved or protocols or whatever for the last two years. I mean, obviously part of that was virtual as well. What is your own assessment for this district going into this year as it relates to COVID-19? Certainly. So that's really uh, data analysis that's ongoing. That never stops um, in Atlanta public schools. Since my administration has arrived, we onboarded a universal screener that has the opportunity that provides the opportunity for us to look at student progress and growth throughout the year. We don't wait to certain points of the year to do that. We progress monitor all year. Georgia Milestones recently released universal screener that we use is MAP. It gave us some anticipation of how we thought performance might be. It wasn't too far off. So we're thoughtful about what those interventions require, where our subgroups uh, are identifying or showing indications for greater resources or more strategic interventions. That is an ongoing process in our practice. Um, that in addition to because of the pandemic, social, emotional, behavioral, and mental health wellness. Mm -hmm. And I need to say that I was listening in as in, in terms of the opportunities for us to think about and be responsive to the trauma that our children have experienced. And we've been thoughtful about how to do that coming into this year. Well, so data analysis is just a natural practice. It's a part of our APS5 um, that we do often. Well, let's make sure our listeners understand because and this depends on districts and, and obviously in, in some cases schools. When the students return, is there a mask policy still in place? Let me be very clear. There is a policy that allows for mask usage to be optional. And so it's an optional usage, that's, that's it. So families can elect to send their scholars with mask or without. Um, that's what we will embrace as we go into the school year. But whatever you choose, send them to school. What about with educators? Yes, it's optional as well. Um, it is an optional uh, consideration, but I will also be clear that in APS, we also provide COVID testing um, twice, twice a week at all of our schools. We've done that since February 2021. We'll continue to do that. And so we'll walk right back into that cadence of availability with COVID testing. And many of our parents have opted to do that. We'll give them that chance to uh, register for that in this uh, semester as well. What is the metric that you all use in terms of if there is an outbreak or if there's a, a number of a spike in cases in a classroom or a district or, or, or a school rather, excuse me, that you all then will alert the community to? So we continue to follow the guidance of CDC. You know, we speak to following the science in that regard. That's been our North Star. We've not deviated from that. Relative to our protocols regarding continued opening, we're more poised to pivot to any type of virtual learning if uh, there is a need in a classroom before we go into a full school environment. And we're continuing to assess those numbers as we get guidance from schools for schools from CDC. I will say clearly as we start this school year, mm -hmm. uh, we anticipate as much normalcy as possible to keep our students in school, um, partly because we have the ability to test and to make uh, um, changes on scheduling as needed when we're able to get that information in advance. APS schools, mostly, if not all, are in Fulton County. You mentioned the science and following the data. So you're following the, the what COVID-19 is doing in, within Fulton County. And Fulton County remains to be one of the counties that has always had a higher percentage of the cases. That's correct. But I want to remind us that two years ago, being in the red was us thinking immediately about shifting to 
everything fully virtual. And now we've learned more, we know more, even the science and the directives and the guidance that we've received from CDC has changed over the last several months, uh, close to two years now. Mm -hmm. So we're very comfortable in the space where school remains fully open. Um, and we also have practices and mitigation strategies in place that allow for us to pivot without closure. Superintendent Herring, have you all lost a number of students since the pandemic that just are not coming back? And do you know if it's because of perhaps concerns or did the, I know normally you, you, you expect a certain number in terms of maybe households move or whatever, but have you lost a significant number of students? So I don't know that I wouldn't name it as significant. If I were to tie our data as it relates to enrollment over the last two years, I would acknowledge that we saw a decline at the earliest age, uh, kindergarten, especially uh, four-year-old pre-K, but kindergarten specifically was where we saw the deepest impact. We also anticipated as we go into this year that those would be returning students. We understood why that existed from that um, virtual engagement component where that wasn't a first choice. Um, not to the point that it's been dramatic decline in APS. Mm -hmm. And we are also anticipating, because the second part of that question was returning, well, we're starting the school year. And I anticipate that we'll see a strong return, uh, even for our youngest uh, families who had to make difficult decisions because of uh, our uh, hybrid and virtual reality a couple of years ago. You mentioned the social and emotional learning. You talked about the wraparound services that are that are needed for so many of students in APS. You have a, you all have an academic recovery and progress recovery plan, so to speak. You all actually started at the beginning of last year, I believe. That's uh, right. What is this phase, and we're going into next week when when they return? So let me students? talk about. A Yes, thank you. Um, I, I appreciate that question because we recognize that uh, whole child intervention and wellness is mission critical, I might add, for the adults as well. Uh, as we close out this summer, we've closed out our second cycle of summer academic recovery, uh, what we call our Summer Academic Recovery Academy. Uh, we had close to nine, 10,000 students participating in that. That will continue again next summer as a part of our academic intervention and recovery efforts our schedule where we have the additional 30 minutes embedded within the uh, school day continues for additional intervention in addition to um, our ability to make certain that we have wraparound services so last year i onboarded additional school psychologists school uh, social workers and nurses to mm -hmm. make certain that uh, in the health field we had enough staff or adequate staff what i wanted want to add relative to student mental health and wellness uh, also is that uh, our board will vote at our next board meeting around the opportunity for us to onboard telehealth services for hmm. every student in APS. So that's more or less on-demand telehealth uh, counseling. Hmm. We recognize and we've heard from our scholars as well that that was important and a priority and we've taken the time to research where that could be um, a benefit. Let me ask you this, how do you all, and, and I know this is a, probably a longer answer, but if you can, for our, our, our audience, when you talk about, I guess, implementing learning loss strategies, that seems like that, that's, a, that's a, a big umbrella and there's a lot that's involved in that. And then how do you assess then where the student is or should be? Yeah, those are the right questions. And so whether you choose to call it learning loss uh, or disrupted uh, or interrupted learning, and, and I prefer to say that we, you know, we've had experienced disruption in, in, in a learning process, and because of that disruption, it does impact the ability to have a more accelerated progress or growth. And how do we gauge for that? Well, one of the things we've done in APS was to onboard what we call a universal screener. So, what does that really mean? Mm -hmm. We do have the opportunity three times a year, beginning of the year, middle of the year, end of the year to measure progress or where students' proficiency lies relative to reading and mathematics. And if students are not proficient, if they're not on level, then we provide the appropriate interventions to help accelerate and support that. Then we assess again, 
mid-year to see if we're seeing growth. So mm -hmm. growth is critical. And we do that in such a way that there are several things happening. We see growth happening throughout the year or lack of growth. And so we enhance or we, and we, we increase the level of supports, whether those are reading interventions or services. And then by the close of the year, we can see that data trend for every individual student. We align those results to what we might project their performance to be on the Georgia milestones. But it's called progress monitoring. And because it's ongoing uh, mm -hmm. progression, we do assess that. We must balance that with not doing too much testing as well. Is there a separate, I guess, process for those students that, that require special needs? There are accommodations. Accommodations. There are accommodations. Mm -hmm. we, we have to honor the accommodations that are needed for students based on their individualized need. Uh, so that's important to note and to honor. Yeah. I want to shift for a moment. By the way, if you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with APS Superintendent Dr. Lisa Herring. We have to talk about security. And sure. obviously, and, and, and I know it's a conversation a lot of educators and superintendents probably don't want to talk about. They wish we could talk about something else. But as you know, concerns about the safety of kids and educators mm -hmm. in schools with the mass shootings that have taken place, you all actually had an active shooter drill presentation. Was it yesterday? Correct. Yeah, that's right. We did training, training. Uh, and we will continue active shooter training as we go into this school year, not just for our staff, but that's something that we recognize is that is unfortunately a reality in our world, in our society um, that we must do inside of our schools. And so, yes, our Atlanta Public Schools Police the Precinct Division, if you will, um, has done an extraordinary job being proactive in that space. And um, we just completed one component of that, it will continue throughout the year. You asked also about just safety and security at large, as mm -hmm. we've just uh, been very um, uh, appreciative of the uh, approval of our last FLOSS campaign. We will be continuing to add on security vestibules within our schools. We do practice uh, the use of um, metal detectors in all of our high schools, and we see us enhancing that more as we go into the school year um, as well. Is there an armed individual, an officer, I know they're resource officers, but do all the schools in APS have someone that is armed? So to be clear, our Atlanta Public Schools police officers are licensed police officers. Mm -hmm. We have our own police division. So by definition, we have officers that are APSPD. Um, we have uh, officers that are uh, um, on assignment across our district, but every single school, every single day does not necessarily have a physical uh, officer there in the way that you're asking the question. There is coverage for every single school in APS. There's coverage. Yes. Yeah. To cover our district. Absolutely. But, but not a, a resource, a armed officer at every school. I just want to be clear. No. For every school, not at every school. Do you I think you should have one at every school? I know that's probably costly, but. Well, there's always an opportunity for us to expand that. I think that's a careful conversation to have. I mm -hmm. think it's one that it requires community engagement. We're not opposed to that. I think that's a strength of, the, of Atlanta public schools. And I know that that question is asked because we, living, we are living in a time and place where that is top of mind. How much does it concern you, though? Oh, I'm impacted just like everyone else. Safety mm -hmm. and security is what gives us the ability to do our core business, teaching and learning. So that's a priority. Clearly. Earlier this week, our education reporter, Martha Dalton, talked about substitute teachers and how some districts are having to get a little bit creative to get substitute mm -hmm. teachers in. Um, are you all having an issue? Do you anticipate? Do you have a plan if you all notice that there is a, a shortage of trying to get substitute teachers in, maybe give them a free, I don't know, Netflix, Hulu, subscription, anything you can to get them in. Look, that might get me in the door. You never know. Rose, are you ready to come on board? Yeah. Well, what's the area where we will take you? Only kindergarten <laughs> and first grade. Um, I got you. Know where your strengths are. <laughs> That's quite all right. Um, let me say this. Um, we, um, we, we have several things in place as it relates to the start of school. Every district has been hit by teacher vacancies. Uh, we feel good about uh, where our vacancies are evolving, um, but we will have a few. Um, what I do know is that 
I will never tell you that we are full as it relates to having all the substitutes that we need. So I welcome the opportunity for us to say, even in this exchange, that if you're interested in serving as a substitute, we welcome you. Yes, we have some strategies in place. Number one, retired educators. Retired educators, particularly in our core content areas or specialized areas, such as mathematics and science or special education, we welcome you. We do have incentives for hire. Uh, we can work with scheduling. So I do want to name that and invite that. Um, I would also say that we would welcome, um, as we close out, move into the school year, uh, an additional effort to bring on more math educators. And so whether you are experienced or whether you've completed a program, contact us in APS at our HR department. We will have HR at our back to school bash tomorrow. All right. I think that's even important uh, to not. So are you, are you saying that I should bring my WABE colleagues? I have Molly Samuel and Emily that. Jones coming up next. We should come because Molly, I, Molly would be a great science teacher. Come on, Molly. And Don't listen, let me get a little bit more specific. Uh, <laughs> we can pay up to one hundred and eighty two dollars. I believe that is a day plus an extra one hundred per day for our math certified uh, uh, substitutes. Pass the word. So Molly, if that's not your area, let us know your area. We'll have you on deck. Um, it's important that as best we can, we have as many qualified, all qualified individuals. And when not, that we are just as heavily reliable, uh, able to rely upon our uh, substitutes. I'm, I'm going to rally my APS colleagues. We'll put Lois in classical music. You know, we'll put Jim Burr. I think he's good at math. You'll put him over yeah. there. And, and I'll just, I'll do the fun stuff with, you know, like yes. I'll teach, me, I'll teach drones or something. I don't know. Now, listen, that, and that, and your class would be full. Our students are just as equally eager and excited about those types of uh, classes and experiences. So Rose, yeah. am I going to hold you to that? Uh, here I come. Let's talk about this uh, back to school bash before we say goodbye. You all have this every year. All the superintendents love to talk about the back-to-school bash. You know, it's the fun stuff. But you all also want to make sure that you're connecting with the community as well. That is correct. And I join that with all of my superintendent colleagues. We're very proud that ours here in the city of Atlanta is one of the largest. We're anticipating approximately 10,000 uh, um, participants, families, et cetera, APS families to be specific as we do the batch tomorrow from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the Georgia World Congress Center. We will be making certain that uh, we provide families with book bags filled with supplies. And then, you know, you've asked several questions in several areas, Rose. Mm -hmm. Data, you've spoken about data, uh, child well-being, um, as well as for me, I introduced personalized learning um, and uh, our core business of teaching and instruction and then um, a signature programming. Why did I name those five mm -hmm. areas? That's our APS five. And that's actually how we're going to organize our our back to school bash. So families can become that much more familiar with our effort and our focus on the APS five in those areas of need and, and to resource them so that they're also prepared. We're excited. It's the energy. It's the first question. It's the right. how do we get that going? That's how we do it. So we hope to see them and we will see them tomorrow at the back. All right. APS Superintendent Dr. Lisa Herring, thank you so much for taking the time. And especially to you, all the educators, staff and students, y'all have a great school year. And especially a shout out to all the kindergartners. I remember my kindergarten teacher, Miss Buford. Yes. She was incredible. Yes. And another Got disclosure, WAB's broadcast license is held by the Atlanta Board of Education. Dr. Herring, thank you so much. Best of luck to you. Thank you so much. Be well. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Here's what we do know. Every state in our nation is impacted by something related to climate change. You look at the flooding this week in, in Kentucky and in my hometown of St. Louis. And our WABE newsroom is providing a series examining how Georgia is impacted by all this. So now I'm joined by our WABE environmental environment editor, Molly Samuel, and our Savannah-based climate reporter, Emily Jones. We've come a long way, Molly. We have an environment editor and a climate report. I remember when we just had you. <laughs> yeah, and now I'm just trying to think about what substitute teaching I could do. So. 
<laughs> Thank you all so much for taking the time. You know, Molly, I'll start with you because I, I was speaking to uh, Christy Swartz not too long ago who covers energy, and she was saying how just 20 years ago there was this perception of how, you know, who who covered climate. And, and it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't as, as she put it, it wasn't as sexy uh, to cover. And now, 20 years later, you've been covering environment, climate for a long time. It is the issue. I mean, obviously there are other issues, but... It is the issue that everyone really wants to know what's happening on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I love Christy. Christy does amazing work. And I mean, I think you can just see, for example, how much the number of environment reporters in Georgia has grown. I've been at WABE for about eight years and I've been covering climate for about 15 years overall. And when I started, there weren't that many of us. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, you know, you've got me and Emily both at WABE. You've got Christy. The AJC's got an environment reporter now, which is great. The Savannah Morning News has an environment reporter. The Georgia Recorder's doing it. The Current's doing it. I mean, I think you can see that news outlets in Georgia are really, like, getting on board with this is really important. And I'm just delighted to see that. It's more competition for us, but I think it's awesome. <laughs> Emily, what about you? What are your thoughts on that? Uh I mean, I would just echo what Molly said, and and it's not just in Georgia. I mean, all over the country, both national outlets and local outlets, more and more people are, you know, assigning specific reporters to the climate beat, or they're even, you know, like we now that we have a two person team, you know, they're they're, uh, you know, starting climate desks because I think more and more people are recognizing like this isn't this isn't a niche issue that like some people are interested in anymore. This is the whole future of all of us on this planet. So it's incredibly important. (laughs) And I mentioned the flooding earlier, and and folks may not know the connection between flooding and climate change, but there's a big connection here. And Molly, you know this. Look, and I'm going to give a basic example of this. It's like, look, it's hotter, right? So there's more moisture in the air, right? See, I've been paying attention, Molly. And what is what happens? Yeah, Rose, what are you a climate scientist? Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so climate change, it doesn't, you know, it's not just making the temperatures warmer. And Emily can go, you know, into even more depth than me on on the sort of attribution science of how scientists know that climate change is causing any given thing. But yes, I mean, it's making the temperatures hotter. Um, across the board, not not just heat waves. It makes heat waves more extreme, but it also just makes temperatures in general mm-hmm. are going up. But right, like you mentioned with extreme weather, um, those storms can happen really fast. They dump a lot of water. I actually I have a friend in those Eastern Kentucky floods. I've been mm. texting with him and thank God his family is safe, but it's just so scary. And I think that sort of also echoes, you know, what you pointed out before that there's more and more interest in climate change is that so few of us at this point don't know somebody who's been affected in mm-hmm. some way. Emily, it's been a hot summer. You know, how does this fit into long-term trends where we've been seeing? So, it is getting hot. I mean, as you said, this has been a hot summer. It is getting hotter overall on average, you know, all all over the planet. Um, as far as the, so Molly mentioned something called attribution science, which is this really robust field of science that that has emerged um, where they're able to to look at the data and and drill down and really they, they can now say very definitively um, about a lot of different um, events, whether they're heat waves or, or uh, you know, flooding or, or, or other extreme weather events, um, they're able to say either like this would not have happened without climate change or mm-hmm. this was X amount worse because of climate change. Now, that takes time. So this extreme heat that has been in in our news, the heat wave, heat waves across the U.S. and, and in Europe last week, you know, um, it's going to be a while before the scientists can definitively say like, yes, this heat wave was X degrees hotter specifically Mm -hmm. because of climate change. They're already able to say that about the heat waves from last summer though. Um, And even without, even without that, that definitive answer about, you know, the heat wave we might've had yesterday, uh, it is hotter overall. And we're also seeing more hotter days. So if, you know, a certain, you know, Georgia's summer's hot in Georgia, right? Mm-hmm. But like, if if we used to have, you know, a certain handful of days that were over 95 degrees or over, over a 95 degree um, heat index, which is the heat and humidity, you know, that number is going to increase. I think, mm-hmm. uh, Molly, correct me if I'm wrong, is it is it 40 days? Oh, you're putting me on the spot with numbers. I'm sorry, <laughs> but the That's point a- is, the point is, they're they're they are able to pretty clearly predict mm-hmm. that you know a, a 
a large number of days are going to, we're going to have more of those very hot days. And you all have been working on this series, actually in terms of even just crafting this, you all started last year, this heat series that started this week. Tell our listeners what's, we're going to take a list to a feature in a moment, but I want you to give our listeners a little bit of a backstory of how this all came together. Yeah, so Emily joined our newsroom in November of last year through a really cool partnership with the climate news website Grist, which does national climate coverage. And they came to WABE and said, hey, do you want a Georgia reporter? And we were like, yes, we do. Thank you. Um, and so that's Emily. So she, so it's a really cool um, partnership that we have um, between two nonprofit news organizations. And so when Emily and I knew each other already, because she's been covering, she's been reporting from the Georgia coast forever. And so we would always run into each other and be like, why are we both covering the same thing? Um, but um, when Emily joined, we started thinking about what's something big that we can start planning now that is maybe a newsroom-wide project that we can be ready. And, and heat just seemed like the mm -hmm. thing. It affects all of us. We knew it was coming. Um, and so we sort of started laying the groundwork right when Emily came on board. Thinking about it as one thing, actually getting all the stories done is another. Um, so, so everything's kind of happening in a rush right now. But, but yeah, this is something that we started thinking about once we were able to expand into a little desk. Emily, give our listeners the kindergarten definition or the Rose Scott definition of the urban heat island effect here. So, uh, <laughs> basically, there there are part. So, cities are hot in general. Um, if you're in a city, you're probably going to be hotter than if you're, you know, out in a place that's got, you know, trees and grass and, you know, all, all of the things in cities, um, the hard surfaces and the concrete and all of that. I mean, just think about how hot the sidewalk is mm -hmm. and a city is nothing but pavement, you know, so that's hot. And then um, within cities, there are areas that are even hotter because if you think about, you um, you know, if, think, think about how much cooler it is if you're just walking along and you're in the hot sun and then you find a tree and you go stand under that tree mm -hmm. in the shade. And of course, we know um, that there are some neighborhoods that have incredible established trees that like the whole neighborhood is shade, in shade and mm -hmm. everybody's got shade in their yard. Mm -hmm. And then there are neighborhoods where there are just no trees and there's, you know, it's all been cut down because mm -hmm. there's a highway that runs through and, and there's no park and there's no shade, there's no green space at all. Um, and what that does is it makes, it makes that area measurably hotter. Um, and the, those neighborhoods also tend to be, um, they tend to be neighborhoods that that were redlined historically. They tend to be neighborhoods that are are disadvantaged in other ways. They're neighborhoods where poverty tends to be higher. They're they're neighborhoods um, where more people of color tend to live. You know, all of those sort of all of those disadvantages and 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 um, you know marginalizations all mm -hmm. kind of overlap um, to to make these neighborhoods hotter and also to to disproportionately affect people who are already having a hard time in a mm -hmm. lot of cases. And we've done some segments on that as well. We're going to listen to one of the stories in just a moment about how tech is being used to study what parts of Atlanta are feeling the worst heat. What stood out about this story first and wanting to include it in this series? So, yeah, so I was so happy that Emil was interested in doing this story. I mean, I think one thing is just that this story illustrates the energy that the WABE newsroom had um, to participate in this series, that we're doing lots of heat stories, and it's not just me and Emily doing them. Um, reporters from all different beats were interested in stories. And so Emil, you know, is our he does tech reporting. He has the tech podcast. And I suggested, hey, you know, here's a tech angle on heat. And so this story was both part of our heat series, but it was also an episode of of Emil's tech cast. Um, so I thought that was really cool. And then the story illustrates exactly what em Emily was just talking about, trying to get that data to back up. These are the hottest neighborhoods and this is where we need help. We need the information, we need that science to confirm it. Let's take a listen to Emil's. Nataki Osborne Jelks wears many hats. One of them is an environmental and health sciences professor at Spelman College. Another is chair of the West Atlanta Watershed Alliance, whose outdoor activity center provides a shady respite from the heat on a warm summer afternoon in the city. 
this old growth forest, um, you know, is kind of a perfect example, you know, of the natural cooling uh, that we get from trees. But that cooling isn't found everywhere in Atlanta. For the past year, Jelks and the Watershed Alliance have been playing a central role in the Urban Heat ATL program. It's part of an effort to collect more location-specific temperature data from different parts of the city. To do this, volunteers use tools that are small enough to literally fit inside your pocket. So this is a handheld temperature sensor. It's called a Pocket Lab. And that's the brand um, as well as the name of the sensor. There's a sensor inside of this box, if you will. And then this is a thermistor or kind of an external temperature probe. And so I'll stick this in. And the way that this works is that you pair it with your phone. So there is an app, um, a Pocket Lab app. With a push of a button, the smartphone app starts collecting data. Jelk says it's normally recorded in Celsius. But for the sake of, you know, easy understanding of what we're looking at, we'll change it to Fahrenheit. So we don't have to do any math. So that we don't have to do any <laughs> math conversions. <laughs> and once the temperature readings pop up on the screen. Then I can actually send this data to myself. So share data. And I can email it to myself and internally we have a process uh, in which we, you know, email it, load it up to a Google form um, and once you submit that. There's a few steps to this process, but they are trying to streamline it. Uh, we do have a student um, intern at Georgia Tech who's working on a process to kind of automate that so that even in the field you can share that data directly to the database. That data is being collected in conjunction with Georgia Tech's Urban Climate Lab, headed by Professor Brian Stone. He says the information gathered using these sensors can be valuable for planners and city officials trying to mitigate the effects of urban heat islands. They need to know how many trees do we need to plant around the city to cool things off on a hot day and reduce heat illness? How many uh, cool roofs do we need or how many green roofs do we need? You can really only do that with a climate model. And he says the more data scientists have, the more reliable the climate model can be. You know, ultimately what, what we want to do is to estimate what is the public health risk in terms of heat illness and heat mortality that is associated with different environments around cities and how can we reduce that risk. Back outdoors, Professor Jelk says the Urban Heat ATL project is meant to seek out more hard data to support previous findings that certain areas of Atlanta are disproportionately bearing the brunt of both pollution and climate change. Historically, um, it's been the case that these are the areas where you might have your factories, where you might have um, a lot of concrete, where you might have um, pollution generating facilities. And so um, we find that communities of color oftentimes are inundated with a number of environmental hazards and stressors and extreme heat is something that layers on top of other disparities. And for her, this is a project that's about more than just numbers in a spreadsheet. It's about solutions and making sure Atlantans, no matter where they are in the city, have a chance to live a healthy life. For WABE TechCast, I'm Emil Moffitt. And that's Emil Moffitt's story that is part of WABE's The Heat Effect. It's a new series on how climate change is impacting Georgia. Again, I'm with WABE's environment editor, editor Molly Samuel, and climate reporter Emily Jones, who's leading the series. What more can our listeners expect? Fascinating story there, too, by the way. Yeah, no, Emil did a great job. I'm so glad he did it. So Emily has a story coming up soon. She actually also talked to Brian Stone from Georgia Tech. Um, but Emily, maybe you could talk a little bit about, about the story you're, you're working on, because it's really related. It's like the next layer on top of what Emil was just reporting on. Exactly, exactly. So so in Emil's story, they were talking right about all of these all of these disparities and things that that layer on top of each other for uh, for a lot of these neighborhoods. And, you know, again, a lot of them are heat islands and they're hotter. And then we can add another layer on top of that, that a lot of people also don't have air conditioning mm -hmm. um, in, in a lot of these neighborhoods. Again, like I said before, they tend to be lower income neighborhoods. Um, so the story that I'm looking at uh, uh, that I think comes out next week is uh, going to be about air conditioning and lack of air conditioning. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, how do you live without air conditioning in uh, in Georgia, where it's hot. And as Molly said, I talked to Brian Stone also from Georgia Tech for that story. Yeah, I think we have a clip. We find these households are clustered. Um, they're clustered in lower income, often communities of color. 
uh, that that do not have air conditioning um, and and therefore are exposed to the greatest heat risk just during normal hot weather in the summer. Mm. We have time to share one more. Molly, one of our reporters has a story related to construction work, construction workers in the heat. Yeah, so Jess Mador, our health reporter, uh, is doing is working on a story about construction workers. Um, according to the CDC, over the past few decades, a third of all workers who died from heat-related illness were construction workers. So this is a big deal. Of course, they're outside in the heat. Um, so Jess has a story. She talked to construction manager Gordon Sisney about how they try to stay safe. It's brutal. Uh, you just got to prep for it, pay attention for the signs for heat exhaustion, and just take more frequent breaks. Sometimes you don't know the signs till it's too late. Mm, I can't wait to hear that. Molly and Emily, as we begin to wrap up, what's the feedback been like so far? And what do you hope that folks take away from this series? Um, I mean, a lot of feedback has just been, I'm really appreciated the energy, both from the WABE newsroom, but also from the organization overall. I'm ecstatic to be talking with you and reaching your listeners. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, I think a lot is that, you know, we're just trying to, help tell the story of Georgians, you know, people all over the state who are adapting, who are trying to help each other, who are looking for solutions. So trying to just keep that energy up. And Emily, I'll give you the last word. Um, well, I hope that that people learn um, about heat and come away with a better understanding both of the risks as well as uh, ways that they can stay safe and also can keep their neighbors safe, because that's one of the most important things is um, you know, keeping an eye on the worker who might be doing some work outside on your house or on mm-hmm. your neighbor who doesn't have somebody to check on them. You know, make sure everybody around you is okay in the heat. WABE's The Heat Effect. It's a new series on how climate change is impacting Georgia. Stay tuned to WABE to hear these stories over the next few weeks, led by our environment editor, Molly Samuel, and our climate reporter, Emily Jones. Thank you both for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Good information. Thank you for stopping in. Thank you, Rose. Great to see you. And you're listening to Closer Look from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Now, here's a question. It's real quick before we say goodbye. Do y'all have two bucks to spare? Now, all it takes is $2 and all the winning numbers to win tonight's $1.1 billion Mega Millions jackpot. Now, I know folks out there are saying, Rose, could, it, could I win? Could I win? Well, you know what? The odds are not in your favor because it's one in 300 million. But again, all it takes is one winning ticket. I have decided to bring in the Closer Look team to determine how much they love me in this show. I'm going to start with Daniel Razel, our producer. Daniel, if you win this 1.1 billion Mega Millions jackpot, are you going to leave Closer Look? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, you would not see me at work on Monday. Really? But, but you haven't gotten a check yet. Yeah, but... Uh, you've insisted that I stay anonymous if I win, so you would not <laughs> hear from me after tonight. <laughs> Let, let's bring in Lennox Johnson, our, our summer intern. You're, you're, you have the whole future ahead of you. Would you would you leave me, Lennox? You know what? I think I might stay for a while because at that point I wouldn't need a salary, so I can do it out of the kindness of my heart. Oh, the oh, thank you, Lennox. <laughs> uh, Kevin Rinker, our engineer yeah. behind me. Uh, Kevin, would you, would you leave Rose? I would leave you with a nice grant. <laughs> the Kevin Rinker grant. That's right. Yep. Yep. Before every show, you'd say this show was brought to you by Kevin Rinker. <laughs> Here's a question, Kevin. I'll stick with you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 1.1 billion, but you can do the annuity or you can get the lump sum. What would you, the lump sum is like 600 and some million. Which would you take? Um, probably the lump sum. Um, I think it just would make more sense. You wouldn't have to have any hassle getting your money uh, as they slowly dole it out to you. You just have it all and you're good to go. All right. Daniel, you want it all at once or what are we doing? I think considering the amount of money that we're dealing with in the first place, the lump sum doesn't seem like a bad deal to me. All right. Yeah. Next. I think I would try to take it yearly just as a measure for impulse control for myself i mm. think that could be a helpful tool yeah, cause for me yeah because you're still in school and you know yeah i need it yeah. i'll need that discipline for sure 
<laughs> I listen. I I appreciate y'all being honest. Folks, check our website. We will have some listings up for new positions for closer because <laughs> apparently if they win, they're not coming. Daniel's not even coming back on Monday. You wouldn't even show, we have a show to do Monday. Well, uh, George isn't at Will State. <laughs> <laughs> it's two ways. <laughs> so just cut you loose is what you're saying. <laughs> I will just cut you loose. Yeah. Well, listen. Best of luck. Well, are y'all getting? Is it is it too nosy if I ask if y'all gonna get a ticket? Or I'm still thinking about it. Right. I I think given everything, the odds are uh, you know. Not favorable. Yeah. Linux, you gonna get a ticket? I think I might give it a shot. It'll be my first lottery ticket, so maybe it'll be a good one. All right. Kevin. So here's my theory. My theory is when it gets this big, when the pot's this big, so many people have bought it, it's not worth it. But then everyone else loses but that one person. Right. So you buy it for the next one, like immediately. Once the winner happens, mm. buy it for the next pot, and your chances are way better. Look at Kevin coming <laughs> with the logic. <laughs> Aren't you like a math mutician major or something like that? Or I don't know, something like that. Well, listen, I'm going to buy tickets. I think it's okay to say that. I know folks are saying, well, we donate to WABE. Well, here's the thing. If I win, I will donate to WABE. If I win the Mega Millions, I will donate. I already donate to WABE, so I will donate more. Next next pledge drive is the Rose Scott Challenge. Yeah, now there are going to be some changes around here. <laughs> you know, there'll be like a you know, red carpet for me every time I come in. And, of course. You know. And then the, the coffee that I, of my choice. That's mm-hmm. all I'm saying. You know? Right, Daniel? We could use a new coffee machine. <laughs> <laughs> that, this could be the end of Closer Look. <laughs> it's definitely the end for this edition. Our producers are Janine Netter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Reze. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder, let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. If you missed any of today's program, it's online always, wabe.org slash Closer Look. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. Good luck to everybody out there who buys a ticket. I'm Rose Scott. change from shifts in power to a mental health crisis so with all this social change how do we balance the human desire for empathy the business need for productivity and the hope to make an impact in our community this is a new podcast the social impact leader i'm jeff Barker. join me as we explore people doing work a little different available every wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts wabe Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E.